0: Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the climax of history. All of creation and all of history is heading toward a definite event. The day and hour of which no man knows... Determined by the Father from all eternity when the Son of Man will return to unite heaven and earth and establish his everlasting throne. When the serpent deceived the man and his wife in Genesis 3, and they took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and together they ate. And they and all of their descendants, all of us together with all creation, were plunged into sin and death and ruin and held in bondage under the curse of God's righteous wrath, before He expelled them from the garden and cast them from His holy presence to live out their days in futility and misery on the face of the earth, He gave them this promise. He said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, And He shall bruise your head, shall crush your head, and you shall bruise His heel. And for long generations, for centuries, for millennia, there was indeed enmity between the woman and the serpent, between her seed and His. But in the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son, born of the woman, the seed, Born to crush the head of the serpent. Born to destroy the works of the devil. First John 3.8 And it's at that point that the vision of Revelation chapter 12 picks up. And I want you to turn there with me. Back a few pages to Revelation chapter 12. John sees in that vision a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She is pregnant and crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. The woman is Israel, the people of God under the old covenant prior to the coming of Christ. Verse 3, John also sees a great red dragon, the serpent. With seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Do you see what's happening? The woman and the serpent. The stars of heaven refer to the saints, the offspring of the serpent. We know that from Daniel 8 and 12. The children of the woman whom the dragon throws down and tramples upon in a vain attempt to prevent the coming of the promised seed. But he could not succeed. And finally the time arrived for the woman to give birth. Verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, but not before accomplishing the work which his father had sent him to perform. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of the woman, the one who is destined to rule the nations with the rod of iron, born in humility. Lived in purity. Died in agony. Raised in victory. And ascended in glory. And the woman who now on the other side of the cross, the other side of the coming of Jesus, now represents the people of God under the new covenant. The church. They are one people under two covenants. Now the church, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Great and small. Everyone who is in Christ by faith is represented by this woman. The new covenant people of God included in the new covenant now inaugurated by the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 6 says, She fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. That's where we stand now. We are the woman nourished and protected in the wilderness of this world for a time set by the Father from all eternity. That prophetic time frame, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. The same time frame spoken of in four different ways in Revelation and in Daniel. During that period, the woman, the church, is nourished, And spiritually protected. So that the promise of Christ stands. On this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nourished and protected in the wilderness. But the certain victory of the church. Comes through great suffering and much death. As the church proclaims by her blood. The truth that to live is Christ. And to die is gain. And they conquer Him, verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And because they did not love their lives even unto the death. That's what the church does in this age. We conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And we speak by the word of our testimony. And we choose Jesus over saving our lives. The testimony of this age is found in the last verse of Revelation chapter 12. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. See, the, ch- the woman represents the church as a corporate whole and the offspring are individual saints on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So how does the... How does the dragon make war upon the saints during this age when we are protected, nourished, and slaughtered? And both are true in the wilderness of this age. Well, as we have seen in the chapters that follow chapter 12, the dragon raises up a beast to intimidate and make war upon the saints. He raises up a false prophet to deceive the saints. And he raises up a harlot to seduce the saints. And as we have seen, by the end of this age, it will appear that the dragon has the victory. It will appear that he has won. Because the harlot is drunk on the blood of the saints. Chapter 17 and verse 6. The beast has killed the prophets of God. Chapter 11 and verse 7. The kings of the earth have marshaled their forces and they've marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Chapter 20 and verse 9. It looks as if the serpent has won. But the male child, the serpent crusher, who is destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron, And his saints who are destined to reign with him will have the victory. And so God has put it into the hearts, chapter 17. In verse 17, he's put it into the hearts of the kings of the earth to carry out his sovereign purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast. And together, the beast and the kings of the earth, they turn on the harlot, they turn on human civilization, they hate her, they make her desolate and naked, they devour her flesh, and they burn her up with fire. Chapter 17 and verse 16, Babylon the great, human civilization, falls, the monuments to the greatness of man now lie in smoldering ruin and ashes. Then God turns His attention on the beast, the false prophet and the dragon, who by His sovereign decree and providence have gathered all of their followers, all who take His mark and worship His image, all of the kings of the earth, all of their forces. They've gathered them together to the battle of Armageddon for one final assault upon the woman who is the church, the beautiful city, the saints. And at that time, there will be persecution, says Jesus. Matthew 24, a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be, says Jesus. And if those days, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, the days will be cut short. Daniel put it this way. The tribulation of this age will be for a time, times and half a time. And only when the shattering of the power of the holy people. Beloved, you get what the Bible is saying, right? Jesus is coming back after a lot of slaughter of His church. When the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, then will all things be finished. Shattered. Let me just give you some of the words used to describe the state of the church towards the end and throughout this age. Shattered, broken, powerless, surrounded, bloodied, dying. That will be the state of affairs for the saints at the end of this age. But then, suddenly heaven opens and the king the serpent crusher emerges. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, says Jesus. For wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And today's text describes that coming of the Son of Man like lightning. And by the end of the passage, the vultures will gather to feed upon the corpses of the slain. This morning I'm going to divide this passage into two main sections. There's the description of the warrior who wages war. Followed by the description of the war which the warrior wages. And then I want to finish with a word of application from the Apostle Peter. We're going to let Peter wrap up our sermon this morning and speak directly to us. Let's begin with the description of the warrior. The male child from Revelation 12. Who is destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron is now seen in Revelation 19 as the omnipotent Christ. The suffering servant now returns as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you remember back in Revelation chapter 5 when John heard the words, nobody in heaven on earth or under the earth could break the seals, and John began to weep, and he heard these words, Weep no more. For behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. And He can open the scroll and break its seven seals. But then when John turned to look, he saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, not a lion, he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And that picture represents Christ in His first coming. He came to conquer sin and death and hell by dying as a lamb and purchasing by His blood a people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But now at the end of the book in Revelation chapter 19, when John looks at Him, he doesn't see a lamb anymore. Now the lion of the tribe of Judah is coming and he is coming to conquer and he is coming to judge and he is coming to kill. He is coming to conquer as a lion and it will not be his blood that is spilled at his second coming. The image of Christ in this passage is the portrait of a divine warrior who is holy and glorious and fierce and absolutely sovereign. You now what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through these verses one at a time and provide some explanation as to the imagery and the symbolism. This is chock full of symbolism. This is not a videotape of what's going to happen at the end of time. This is an image of the theological truth that Christ is coming again. So I'd like to try and unpack some of the symbols and the images of this latter half of chapter 19 in order that we may gain a picture of what is being conveyed through this visionary text. Let's begin in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. All right, the image of the white horse conveys military triumph and conquest. You can read back to the first writer of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 6. In fact, readers in the first century Roman Empire would have immediately, upon reading verse 11, they would have immediately thought of the victory parades when a great Roman general returned from victory in battle and entered Rome with his conquered enemies in tow and he would lead them to the place of judgment and execution. That's the image that's being conveyed here. It's also interesting to note, by the way, that this is now the third time that Jesus has appeared on something white in order to judge. He is seated upon a white cloud when he comes in chapter 14 to harvest the wicked of the earth. And he's come he's shown on a great white throne in Revelation chapter 20 when he sits to judge the earth. He is called faithful and true. It's the first of four titles that are applied to Jesus in this passage. Speaks to Jesus' faithfulness to fulfill His promises. Specifically, His promise to return in judgment at the end of the age. He is shown as the warrior coming to do exactly what He promised and swore that He would do. Finally, John says that in righteousness, He judges and wages war. Now, we have dealt over and over again in recent weeks with the justice of God The righteousness of God in the judgment of the wicked. I'm not going to belabor that point again here. All I will say is that the Bible repeatedly affirms the righteousness of God to judge the wicked. It repeatedly affirms that it is good and right and holy and necessary that Christ return to inflict wrath upon the wicked. Vern Poitras, theologian from Westminster Seminary, says... Evil must be destroyed, not only for the sake of God's justice, but for the sake of the purity of the new world that God is creating. He is killing the cancer in order that the new creation may be pure and holy and perfect. The judgment and wrath of a righteous God is necessary to the maintaining of a moral universe. You don't want to live in a world in which God is not returning to judge, in which there is no recompense for wickedness and evil. All of the evils and wrongs and injustices and falsehoods and lies and genocides and assaults and rapes and murders down through time must be set right. Or else there is no such thing as righteousness. So I exhort you, as we proceed into these bloody passages of judgment and destruction, trust Jesus. Trust Him in salvation. And trust Him to do what is right in judgment. Everything we're going to read is good and right and holy and necessary. Or else God wouldn't do it. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. The eyes like a flame of fire comes from Daniel 10.6. And was repeated in the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1 and verse 14. It speaks to the piercing gaze of of the eyes of Jesus and his ability to look beyond the, the outward appearance and judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, everything, all the contents of man's heart are laid bare before the eyes of the judge. He is fooled by no one, and he is fooled by nothing. The many diadems or crowns on his head speaks to his omnipotent sovereignty. And it stands in stark contrast to the seven diadems on the dragon, 12-3. And the ten diadems on the beast, 13-1. Jesus has so many crowns on His head, they can't be counted. The power of the beast and the dragon may be great upon the earth, and it is. But it is no match for Jesus, the omnipotent warrior king. The name written that no one knows but himself has engendered much speculation. Because this new name, it appears throughout Revelation, it is promised to the saints in 2.17, to the one who overcomes, I will give him a new name. And it's equated in chapter 3 and verse 12 with the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and my own new name which I will give to the one who overcomes. In the new Jerusalem in chapter 21, verses 2 and 10 are equated with the bride who is the, cri- the, the church, the saints of God. You wrap all of these things, the new name, the name of God, the name of Jerusalem given to the saints who overcome, the new Jerusalem descriptive of the church and wrap all of this together. And here's what I think this being conveyed. I think... The idea is Christ's covenant relationship with His bride, the church. He he is coming with His new name in order to gather His bride to Himself and to put His name on her. He's coming to consummate, consummate that marriage covenant. We then, the bride, will be known by His name and thereby separated from all others on the face of the earth who don't have His name. He's coming for his bride. Verse 14, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The robe dipped in blood is another reference back to Isaiah 63. We looked at it when we were in Revelation 14. And in that passage, Isaiah looks and he, he says, who is this coming, marching like a man of war from the From the land of Edom, his garments are are stained with blood. Well, it is the Lord who is coming back from wreaking his vengeance upon the Edomites. Well, John uses the same image and he applies it to Jesus. Jesus is coming back and his robe is dipped in blood. It is Jesus who will come and execute the Lord's vengeance and judgment on the last day, just as Isaiah foresaw. He is called the Word of God, which harkens back to the prologue of John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Jesus is the Word who was with God in the beginning, the Word who was God, through whom all things were created, the Word who was made flesh and dwelt among us, the only begotten of the Father, who is full of grace and truth, whose glory we who believe have beheld He's the Word of God from John's Gospel. It speaks to His deity and His role in creation and His incarnation as the seed of the woman, the fulfillment of God's promise. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, bright and pure, were following Him on white horses. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the armies of heaven who accompany Christ at His return is... The angelic host. It's the angels who come with Christ at His return in Matthew 13 and 16 and 24 and 25. 2 Thessalonians 1, Jude 14 and other places. But I don't think it's the angels here in verse 14. I think the armies of heaven who follow Christ in in this last victory are the saints. Let me give you a few reasons why. I think it's the faithful and glorified saints. Number one, do you remember in Revelation 7 and 14 when we saw the church pictured as 144,000? Do you remember how they were, they were shown, how they were divided? They were divided by military divisions, just like in the book of Numbers, 12,000 by each tribe that surrounded the, the camp, that surrounded the, the tabernacle and The point of that vision was that the church now, these are the armies of the Lamb. In Revelation 14, we are the the holy and the pure, the followers of the Lamb who follow Him wherever He goes. So the church has already been pictured in military, warlike imagery. And so I think we're the armies that come back with Christ in verse 14. Here's a second reason. It says the armies of heaven are clothed in fine linen, white, and pure. Does that sound familiar from last week? the exact same description that was used of the church the bride it was granted to the bride to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure it seems strange to me that in the course of about seven verses John would use the same terminology to apply to a different group third and most convincingly look back at chapter 17 and verse 14 John speaks of the combatants in this last battle and he says, They, the beast and the kings of the earth, will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. Beloved, the called and chosen and faithful are the saints. We are with Christ in the last battle. This is us. We are the armies." Of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and pure. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. What an image. A sword. A sharp sword. Razor sharp. Coming out of the mouth of the Son of Man with which He will strike down the nations. This imagery should alert anyone, no matter what view of Revelation you've taken, that we're in the realm of symbolism. We're in the realm of imagery. Revealing theological truths, not literal descriptions. When Jesus comes back, he does, He's not going to have a sword coming out of His mouth. The image comes from Isaiah 11.4 and 49.2. It was found back in Revelation 1.16 it speaks of Christ's word of judgment. In 2 Thessalonians 2:8, 2, Paul is describing the same event and he says the lawless one the beast, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It's the same idea. The same mouth which spoke the worlds into existence. The same mouth which utters words that are spirit and are life. John 6.63 The same mouth which spoke into the tomb of Lazarus and commanded he who was dead to come back to life. John 11 The same mouth who calls into the tombs of sinners' hearts and commands them to awaken and to live and to believe, and they come awake and they come alive and they come to faith, the same mouth on that day will speak a word not of life but of death and not of salvation but of judgment and the whole world will fall at His feet in an instant. Now I don't profess to know exactly what this is going to look like. I don't know exactly what the symbolism means and what the images convey and how every eye will see him when he comes back bodily. I don't know how it's all going to work, but I know this, the final battle will not be fought with the clash of swords. It will not be fought at all. It will end just as quickly as it begins by the sovereign word of the Son of God. Let there be death, and death there will be. The rod of iron is an allusion to the prophecy of Psalm 2.9 concerning the Lord's anointed king who will be granted an inheritance of nations. It was applied to the male child, if you'll remember, in Revelation 12.5 and again now to the conquering king in Revelation 19. Finally, the image of the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God we've seen before. It's an image of final judgment. And this image of the winepress of the wrath of God has a long and rich biblical history. On His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Absolute sovereignty belongs to Jesus Christ. And on His return, On the day of His vengeance, He will show Himself King over all the kings of the earth, and He will show Himself Lord over all creation. Behold, He is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even even those who pierced Him, those who despised Him, those who rejected Him, those who disregarded Him, those who yawned at Him as they thought football was more compelling than Jesus. And they will mourn on account of him. For this reason, God has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will bow. And you will confess. And for some of you, that's the greatest news in the world. And for a few of you, that ought to terrify you. We're in the day of grace. This has not happened yet. You can bow the knee and confess with the mouth today. And receive all of the blessings for which Christ died. You. You can. Anyone here. Any of you. Can bow the knee before Jesus Christ. And confess him as Lord. And all of the benefits of redemption. Life. Justification. Joy. Peace. Mercy. Reconciliation with God. Eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. It will be yours. But if you wait. Wait. And if he comes and he does not find his name upon you, his seal upon you, you will bow the knee, you will confess with the mouth, and you will be condemned to an everlasting torment in hell. That is the warning of this text. It's not yet. Why do you think he told you before he came? He's not looking to surprise anyone. I heard in the debates last week. I'm going to get borderline political here and then I'm going to I'm going to step way back from the line. Okay? Why do they let people know before they're going to attack? That's idiotic. No, it's mercy. So that the citizens could get out before the bombs drop. That's exactly what's happening here. He has told you before he comes. So that you could flee Babylon and find him with merciful arms open wide, ready for you to bow and confess and be forgiven. It's mercy. That's the description of the warrior. Then comes the war. Which as I said is not actually much of a war. It's rather an immediate and summary execution of all of God's enemies in one climactic act of judgment. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great." And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And as with so much of the book of Revelation, this is is drawn from Old Testament imagery. It comes from Ezekiel 38 and 39. In that passage, God speaks of a shadowy figure at the end of the age known as Gog of Magog whom he will raise up together with a mighty multinational army who will march against the people of Israel, invade the beautiful land, and threaten to destroy the people whom God loves. Ezekiel 38.16, God speaks to Gog of Magog and he says, You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In latter days I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And we'll spend more time in that in the next chapter because in Revelation 20, verse 7, John makes that connection explicit. He explicitly takes the Ezekiel prophecy and he applies it to the final battle of Armageddon, in which the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet and all of their followers, he brings them together. He brings them to invade the beautiful land, to encamp and surround. The camp of the saints. And they are finally defeated by fire that falls from heaven. For today, I just simply want to point out that this strange imagery of birds eating flesh. It comes from Ezekiel 38 and 39. In the aftermath of God's defeat of his enemies, we read this. Ezekiel 39.4 You shall fall on the mountains of Israel speaking of Gog and his armies, the beast, the dragon, the prophet, and all who bear their mark. You and all your hordes and all the peoples who are with you, I will give you to birds of the prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble, come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast, the great supper of God. The sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat the flesh and drink the blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth. And you shall be filled at my table with the horses and charioteers. With mighty men and all kind of warriors. Declares the Lord God. The war is over in an instant. Number one, this is not a different battle from the other battles described in Revelation. In all, Revelation contains seven descriptions of the last battle on the final day of wrath. The six seals, sixth and seventh seal from Revelation 6. The sixth and seventh trumpets from Revelation 9 and 11. The beasts war upon the saints... Revelation 11, the harvest of the wicked, Revelation 14, the sixth and seventh bowls of wrath, Revelation 16, the return of Christ here in Revelation 19, and the final defeat of Satan, Revelation 20, all one and the same event. Described from different angles for different purposes using different imagery. Jesus doesn't come back to fight seven battles seven different times. He comes back once, on the last day, to rescue his people and to fight the war. There is a definite article in front of it, Tan polemon the war, the one war, the battle of Armageddon. Second, Christ's defeat of his enemies is total and final and instantaneous. I don't know what it will look like. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that upon his return, the Lord Jesus will kill the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. In Revelation 20 and verse 9, it says, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the armies of the dragon. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, It says the Lord will destroy Gog and his armies with a great earthquake, with the sword, with pestilence, with bloodshed, with torrential rains and hailstones and fire and sulfur. Here in Revelation 19, John simply says the beast and the false prophet were captured and thrown alive into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur and everyone else was just slain by the sword that comes out of the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. I don't know what it's going to look like on the last day, but I know this the wicked and unbelieving of the earth all of them will be slain by the word of christ the decree of judgment and death depart from me accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels matthew 25:41 that's the sword Third observation, you're either with Christ or against Him. You will either be found among the flesh of all men, both free and slave, small and great, who fall beneath the sword of Christ's judgment, or you'll be among the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, who follow Him to His triumph. You will either be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, for you will be the great supper of God. Be sure. I can't plead with you more than I've already done. It's going to have to be the Spirit. Be sure you are with Christ when He comes. Repent. Believe. Confess. Be reconciled to Him. Today is still the day of grace. I promised you an application. I promised you it wouldn't be mine. The Apostle Peter was writing to the church about the second coming of Christ. And here's what he wanted them to do with it. And so I'm just going to conclude by reading his words to you, to the church. Here's what you do With such massively, cosmically important truth. Peter says to us, to us. Are you listening? These are words by the Holy Spirit to us. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder For they deliberately overlooked this fact. Deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. God did it before. According to His Word. And He'll do it again. According to His Word. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you. The Lord is patient towards you. He's not willing that any of you, any, any of you would perish, but that all of you would come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. Listen, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, all of it, the heavens, the earth, the mountains, the islands, the trees, the grass, your savings accounts, your jobs, your entertainments, all of it, since it's to be dissolved What sort of people ought you to be? That's the question. What sort of people ought you to be in light of Revelation 19? Peter answers, In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. An unbeliever, Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? As we close, consider that question. If Jesus were to come back today, tomorrow, next week, next year, in your lifetime, how would that change the way you live today? There is yet time to repent, but not much. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to have a time, just a few minutes, of silent meditation. And I want you to repent. Some of you, I want you to confess Jesus as Lord. I want you to examine under the Holy Spirit your lives. What sort of people ought you to be? It's what Peter said you must do in light of what we've just preached. What sort of people ought you to be? Father, I pray for every heart across this congregation. Believers, unbelievers... Prodigals, older brothers, everyone, I pray that Your Spirit will do a mighty and powerful and regenerating and awakening work, a hope-creating, holiness-inducing work in every heart here. For Your glory, do it. Do for us what we are helpless to do for ourselves.